0: Welcome back. My name is Matthew. I'm Jaden. And I'm Jack. And you're listening to Ad Hoc. As Fox News emerges from a defamation lawsuit for peddling election conspiracies, and Trump-hating Trump supporter Tucker Carlson gets the boot, we wanted to take a step back to reflect on the state of our polarized media landscape. In this age of misinformation, echo chambers, and biased reporting masquerading as news, maybe we need to look to the past for solutions. Today we wanna talk about the Fairness Doctrine, a controversial 20th century news policy that aimed for something completely unthinkable in the modern day, balanced and fair news coverage. Before bringing you guys in, I just want to start with a bit of background and history on the Fairness Doctrine. The Fairness Doctrine was an FCC policy that required licensed radio and TV broadcasters to satisfy a few conditions in their coverage. First and most importantly, they had to present balanced coverage of controversial issues. So for instance, if a station argued in favor of lowering property taxes, it would need to give airtime to someone who held the opposite position. It also required them to grant a right to reply for an individual who is criticized in an editorial or believes they were unfairly targeted in news programming. And finally, it required that broadcasters grant equal airtime to opposing candidates for public office. The Fairness Doctrine was justified on the basis of the scarcity rationale, which basically said, there's a limited availability of broadcast frequencies, so the government can intervene in the name of the public interest and place regulations on those who received those exclusive licenses to the public airwaves. Over the few decades of its existence, the Fairness Doctrine has received praise by some for its attempt to protect viewers from biased or incomplete reporting, but also fierce criticism for manipulation by political elites. In 1987, the FCC formally repealed the Fairness Doctrine. It maintained some of its provisions, but they were eventually scrapped in 2011. There were various attempts to reinstate it during that period, but by this point, conservative radio had taken off, Rush Limbaugh was gaining dominance, and conservative opinion had mostly turned against it, so efforts to revive it had petered out. Today on the podcast, we want to ask whether we lost something with the disappearance of the Fairness Doctrine, and whether this policy is well-suited for our modern era of polarized news coverage. Before we get into the viability of the Fairness Doctrine today, I think it would be helpful to cover its impact when it was in place. So what did you guys pick up on? What kind of impact did the Fairness
1: Doctrine have during that period? Yeah. Thanks, Matthew. I think I think the Fairness Doctrine certainly had its benefits. Um, it, it really helped to deter racism on uh, news platforms. Um, for instance, uh, there was a radio show called WLBT. It was an NBC affiliate. It employed no black people, uh, even though its audience was almost half black, um, and really peddled some incredibly racist tropes. Because of the Fairness Doctrine, uh, a civil rights activist, Medgar Evers, was able to go onto WLBT and respond to the racist broadcasting that was apparent there, and WLBT actually eventually lost their license because they weren't abiding by the Fairness Doctrine, which told stations around the country that if they discriminated against their black audiences, they could lose their licenses too. And I think maybe the, the greatest benefit of the Fairness Doctrine was the one that you couldn't see at the time, uh, which was the prevention of what came afterwards, which you mentioned already, uh, the rise and popularization of right-wing racist unfiltered talk shows like those of Rush Limbaugh's. It seems maybe that like, the fairness doctrine with the lid on the Pandora's box, and once you took that off, right-wing hatred came out.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty benevolent overview, Jaden, and I'll just say it's, it's hard for, for me to sit down and talk about fairness today in light of what you talked about, Matthew, and, and the loss of that great epitome of fairness, Tucker Carlson. Um, but if, if I can, I'll, I'll just kind of take up his mantra um, and fiercely criticize the fairness doctrine. Um, There was a long history of politicians during the Fairness Doctrine's reign of co opting the term fair, which I think we would all agree is a a normative and and vague one, in order to try to suppress the type of coverage that wasn't helpful for them. So, for example, Richard Nixon, that great fan of independent journalism, (laughs) uh, used his FCC to enact a cross media ownership ban. So, he wanted to prevent people who own newspapers from also owning radio stations or TV stations uh, to intimidate. The Washington Post into backing off the Watergate story. Um, So that was kind of the the media background that Nixon was operating under with Fairness Doctrine. Uh, But it wasn't a one-sided thing. Democratic politicians also used the doctrine to rail against conservatives. For example, JFK and his brother Robert F. Kennedy used the Ideological Organizations Project, uh, not the kind of IOP that we would like, (laughs) uh, bad IOP. Uh, to target right-wing broadcasters for audits so that they could dry up the flow of listener donations into those radio networks. Um, so there's a, a litany of examples that we can turn to that I think, for example, some conservatives or libertarians today would use to argue that the Fairness Doctrine was never really fair. Um, so I think it's important to acknowledge that even the intentions of the Fairness Doctrine going back to you know before it was officially declared doctrine in the 60s, the 20s, 30s, the rules that led up to it many would characterize maybe didn't have the intentions of fairness that we, we might have hoped it would have. Um, so I think you can, you can really look at it both ways.
1: Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning there was another kind of facet called the Coleman Doctrine um, that both President Kennedy and Johnson used, which said that response time that was claimed under the Fairness Doctrine should be given for free if the respondents said they couldn't afford to pay. So if some radio show said one opinion and then someone watching at home was like, I have a different opinion, but they were like, I couldn't pay, I can't pay for this time. The radio show itself had to pay for their time on the show. And Kennedy and Johnson both had professional organizations while they were in office that were tasked with moderating, moderating, monitoring right wing radio stations and then demanding time for reply. And so Kennedy and Johnson were imposing huge costs on conservative radio stations across the country, it basically forcing them to stop a bunch of their conservative radiotropes because it was just so uh, harmful uh, to their numbers.
2: Yeah, and it's, it's really just miraculous that during this time after the Coleman Doctrine said that if you couldn't pay for it, it would be free. Simply no one all of a sudden could ever pay for exactly. airtime. Uh, it seems like not, not a single person who wanted to use the Coleman Doctrine ever volunteered to pay for their airtime. Um, So there's, as you said, there's kind of a democratizing aspect to it, but there's also kind of this weaponization of free radio time.
0: Yeah. And interestingly enough, it did have at least some level of bipartisan support. Yeah. Um, I mean, at the political level, you can argue that's because of whoever is leading the administration at the time might have some kind of incentive to use it for the manipulative purposes that we were talking about. But it also seems to be the case that regular people or activists on the ground, liked the Fairness Doctrine to some extent in the sense that they saw an opportunity to leverage it for various purposes. So, you know, and you were talking about how liberal activists were able to use the Fairness Doctrine to fight racist messaging in radio or inequities. Um, but conservative organizations like the NRA also saw the Fairness Doctrine as a way to, you know, mandate the inclusion of conservative voices in what they viewed as a predominantly liberal media landscape. So There actually was a surprising amount of agreement during that period that the Fairness Doctrine could serve various political purposes, um, and it wasn't just that one side of the political aisle was supporting it while the other side was trying to get rid of it.
2: Yeah. And I think, Matthew, you you mentioned this in your introduction, but the, the scarcity idea, I think, was really key. And I think I would point to that as kind of explaining the bipartisan support. Um, You know, it it was quite easy to imagine, even if you're a Democrat, that with limited radio space, that one day you could be held out from having one of the few stations available at the time. Uh, So it was just a very, very different media landscape than we have today, where there's virtually unlimited broadband and unlimited internet space, obviously. There actually was a concern that we would run out of stations for people to use. Yeah,
0: Right. So then, you know, if the original argument relied on the scarcity rationale, which certainly no longer applies. We're no longer limited in the number of broadcasters in, in any <laughs> meaningful sense the way we were before. The question we should ask is, is there now a new rationale that substitutes for it in the present day, right? The rationale may be that we need to combat media polarization and misinformation. Maybe we need to combat elite control over the media. So I want to turn to the present day. Before we get into the viability of the Fairness Doctrine, let's just talk a little bit about the problems with news media in its current form. Um, You know, one could maybe naively make the argument that there's so many forms of news out there, there is a degree of competition. If one news network says something ridiculous, it gets fact-checked or called out by another news media. And so in this era of competition, one can argue the Fairness Doctrine or something like it is no longer necessary. Um, Do we think that's true? Do we think that is a sufficient, you know... Um, check against polarization in news media, or do we think there are significant problems and biases that exist? And let's talk about how we can fix them.
2: Yeah, I'm going to start out there by agreeing with the general argument that there's not a necessity anymore uh, because of the lack of scarcity. Um, I think, as, as we're going to get into, there, there's many legitimate criticisms that you can make about today's media ecosystem, the internet ecosystem, TV news, you name it. Um, but a lack of access to a diverse range of information sources and a diversity of viewpoints is certainly not one of them. Um, I think it's, it's fair to argue that we have the most, most access to different points of view in human history by far. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to throw out some numbers that kind of show this. In 1987, the year that the FCC stopped enforcing the Fairness Doctrine, it was seen as a time when there were more programs, more TV, more radio than there was before, right? They had 1,300 TV stations in 1987 and around 10,000 radio stations, right? So, so that's a lot. Fast forward to today, there are more than 1,700 commercial TV stations and somewhere between 20 and 30,000 radio stations. And that's just TV and radio, not even to get into the internet, which is the main source that people actually receive their news today. Um, so there are problems with biased news sources for sure, um, but I would point more to the demand side of consumers looking for that type of information rather than a supply-side intervention like the Fairness Doctrine to fix that. Although,
0: is this multiplication of more and more news outlets just kind of like an illusion of of competition? Because it's true in theory there is more news available, but ultimately today people kind of construe their political identities around shows like Tucker Carlson, and each of these news networks individually breed distrust of one another, accusing the other of various things like fake news and falsifications. I'm not really sure it is true that we have like a competitive news environment that is meaningfully different in that sense. A lot of news networks have a functional monopoly over their viewers when they've radicalized them into submission to their own news network at the expense of all others by sowing distrust and turning them against them and radicalizing their enemies. So I'm not, I'm not really sure it is true that we have this kind of pluralistic competitive news atmosphere today.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I think it's... It's certainly true that people have a choice today to get different perspectives. But you know, the fact of the matter is people are not choosing to get different perspectives. If you're watching Tucker Carlson, you're probably also watching Ben Shapiro. If you were watching Don Lemon in the past, you're probably also watching
2: Rachel Maddow. No more New or, Year's Eve with Don Lemon. No more New Year's Eve. Another moment of silence.
1: Um, so I think now the question is, in the past, it was necessary that we made it so that on these very few few options there were different perspectives available. Now the question is, on the few perspectives that each group of people is watching, is it necessary to force those people into viewing different perspectives? Because they have the option, but they're not going for the option. So is it on? Uh, is it up to the government to make sure that they see other options as well?
2: Yeah, I, I'm receptive to your point, Matthew, that maybe there is kind of an, an illusory aspect to the competitive media environment. But I think that gets into more of like merger policy and... You know, how how many stations should you allow, like, a major TV network to own at the local level? Um, but just, the Internet, and broadly, though, I would still argue is quite competitive. Because t- take TV news out of it for one second, where I think you can argue that there are maybe three titans, like Fox... CNN and MSNBC, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, I do think there's a competitive internet news atmosphere. And I think it is, to a large extent, mediated by social media, which creates these echo chambers that I we, we all agree are prob- problematic. Um, but I still have the ability to go to Google and put in my search bar a variety of different viewpoints and media sources. Um, and I think bo- both sides have innovated in that respect. Um, but we know that social media uses algorithms to feed you information,
0: keep you in an echo chamber. Of course. And we know also that the TV networks where a lot of people, admittedly older people generally, get their views probably have some incentive to radicalize their viewer base so that they keep watching them. You know, I'm not entirely convinced. I think a lot of these news networks kind of preclude like any meaningful
1: ability to seek Competing viewpoints on these issues. Yeah. I think what's missing a lot of the time in this conversation is the discussion of local television, too, um, because there are certain groups that hold almost a monopoly over much of the local television that's broadcast around the United States. The Sinclair Broadcasting Group owns almost 200 telev- television stations that cover over 40% of American households. Okay. And that's hidden. Nobody knows because they're different channels, they're in different places. But they're very funny videos of newscasters literally saying the same exact script, like 100 newscasters, and they're just put over each other saying the exact same thing, because one group controls them all. And that's especially uh, scary when it comes to local news, um, because people actually trust their local news. Um, There was a Gallup poll in 2022 that 44% of Americans trust their local news, which doesn't sound so high, but that's compared to less than 27% of Americans who trust national news. So there's a little bit of a worry that people are getting duped by their local news, which seems very community oriented. It's all close and cozy and true, but in reality is controlled by these much larger corporations that are feeding you stuff they want you all to believe.
2: Yeah, right. and the, I mean, the, pr- the problem I think with local news is that it produces such high quality and needed investigative journalism, um, like local news. Led to revelations about Jeffrey Epstein. That was the Miami Herald. Larry Nasser. That was the Indianapolis Star. I think a a lot of big stories that we would think were broken by Ronan Farrow have been broken by the newsroom down the street. Um, The problem is, it's not sexy to pick your local paper or to pay the subscription fees when their online presence is a lot less than major news organizations, and none of it is sensational. You know, until they break that huge story. Um, So I think the. We've kind of danced around like the role of the media consumer in this, and I think that kind of has to be front and center. Um, it's it's hard to kind of demonize the average TV viewer for picking the channel that says the things that they want to see. Um, but from my view, you know, it's it's foolhardy to think that channels won't follow the intentions of their viewers. You know, there there have been some good studies about kind of how media organizations respond to what they think their viewers want. Um, There's a study by Matthew Genskow and of Stanford and Jesse Shapiro, who's here at Harvard, that suggests that the political slant of newspapers tracks better with the region that they're aligned with, even than the, own, even than the political leanings of their own owners. Interesting. So that seems to very much suggest that there's a selection effect where newspapers cater their covers to what they think viewers want, and then viewers eat it up, and then that further increases the cycle of newspapers becoming more ideologically extreme. Um, I don't know how to break that cycle, um, but it seems like there should be more of a role of consumers, but how do you actually push consumers to do that?
0: So can can I just take stock here? It seems like in the current news landscape, we've seen two main problems. One is just the problem of polarization, so different news outlets clinging to the political identities of their consumers, radicalizing them, turning them against the other side, so you know, cases of Fox News peddling election conspiracies. But the left isn't innocent of this either. You know, MSNBC has been accused of permitting fabrications against critics of the Democratic Party. So that's one category of problems, right? The the, the polarization, the encouragement uh, or permission of fabrications to demonize the other side. Second category is kind of this consolidation and corporate control that seeps in, as Jaden was saying, even into local TV, local media, and that Presumably prevents you know the diversity of opinions, um, you know, the existence of real and meaningful debate uh, that viewers have access to. Is that a fair summary? I think that's a fantastic but summary.: yeah. So now, does this state of polarization, combined with the problem of media consolidation and corporate control, give us reason to return to the fairness doctrine? Or do we think that maybe our politics today are so polarized that the Fairness Doctrine can't even succeed in the first place, that it's too prone to political manipulation, that this idea of fairness is a total farce that could never truly apply
1: in the real world of 21st century politics. Yeah, I think no. Um, I think it just wouldn't work. Um, Because what the Fairness Doctrine does is it necessitates that people see different perspectives. Um, And I just think that wouldn't work on people who are so polarized today. Professor, Professor Nicholas Ashford at MIT, who's the director of the technology and law program, he talks a lot about neurological science um, and behavioral psychology. There, there are studies that show if you give someone a balanced report that has some arguments that global climate change is real and some that it is false, um, whatever view they came in with is reinforced. Even with a balanced perspective, people uh, only like to see what they already think. Um, And so what Professor Ashford says is needed is critical thinking and much more debate. But I think debate wouldn't uh, work as well. Um, I'll give one example of maybe a a kind of experiment of uh, the fairness doctrine in today's modern world. Uh, The Daily Show, which was hosted by Trevor Noah, uh, now Jordan Klepper, who's a comedian hosted sometimes, um, goes out on the street and talks to Trump supporters and liberals alike. There's one scenario in which he went to uh, a Trump rally. They were protesting impeachment. So it's all these Trump supporters together. They're in an echo chamber, um, all believe the same things. And he walked up to a woman who was saying, Donald Trump is innocent, he's innocent, he did nothing wrong. And he said, well, how do you know this? And she said, well, if he did something wrong, he'd be trying to hide it. And Klepper responds, so if he was stopping people from testifying, that would be hiding it. It would be an admission of guilt, right? And she says, of course, of course. And then he proceeds to tell her, well, he is. He's stopping uh, John Bolton from testifying. And then he says, the woman took a very, very long pause, thought about it, and then said, I don't care. Right. And that's the problem with our landscape today, landscape today, is that people don't care about the new piece of information. Even if the fairness doctrine necessitates that Fox News uh, brings on people with liberal points of view, no one's gonna care. And I think the reason is, Klepper says, like, Trump's magic trick was making people think they are MAGA. In the past, you could debate about what you want, what other people want, and come to a compromise. But but when politics become who people are, you can no longer debate. Um, I agree with the spirit of that
0: point. Uh, And, and, you know, one one interesting um, term used in political science that I think is quite a good one to capture what's going on is not polarization but calcification which is the hardening are we scientists now apparently the hardening of our political identity so polarization is about like the poles yep. pulling apart right yep. it's about our widening political gap mm-hmm. calcification is about the fact that our identities we're get, we're, there's a hardening of our political identities in the sense that we're more fixed in them we're more firm in them we're uh, you know stronger in our belief that the that folks on the opposite side of the political spectrum are wrong but in any case, I don't, I, I'm not sure I would put it as extremely as you did. I think there's certainly a subset of people who you present them rational arguments and they're just going to say, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't think that applies to everyone. And I think, you know, should the fairness doctrine be implemented in in some sense, in some way, I do think there are some people who would
2: benefit. I I agree with you in an optimistic lens and I would be pretty scared, yeah, if everyone was like the people that Jordan Klepper talked to on that segment. Um, but there's other research, too. Like I think a related idea to what you were talking about, Jaden, was the backfire effect, which is kind of political scientists, political psychologists found a similar thing, where if you talk to someone who, for example, believed that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, right, like really had nuclear weapons when they invaded, and then you show them evidence that they didn't, they become more firm in their belief that Iraq did. Right. So essentially that people become more firm in their even false beliefs when you present contradicting information. Do I think that applies to everyone? No. But Matthew, to your point, I think even a partial enactment of the fairness doctrine is probably trying to target people at the ideological fringes, you know, who might be most resolute in their oftentimes false beliefs. And I'm just trying to picture it. Like, I'm I'm trying to picture, like, Pete Boudjage on Tucker or... Oh God! Uh, not talker talk anymore. Not talker anymore. <laughs> God. Uh, Pete Buttigieg on Janine Pirro, like every week. Mm. And great, would that be really? Yeah, it'd be great, like for us libs to watch. And like, yeah, Buttigieg owns the conservatives or whatever. <laughs> but I'm not thinking that the average Fox News viewer is getting a little, little less resolute in their belief each time that Pete goes on. I think that they're, as Jane had said, we might just be in an age where people are so ossified, calcified, whatever you want to say, that simply presenting the other side is not enough.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think it's also important because we, we've been looking at it for the past few minutes from the side of like, Fox News saying something and then uh, liberals going on Fox News and presenting their point. But it's also important to think about it the other way, um, liberals, MSNBC saying something and then uh, Fox News viewers wanting to come on and, and counter that. And I worry about like, false equivalencies um, and giving equal time and weight to unequally – meritorious arguments like climate change for For example or or even like something like recently like that the election was stolen right Right? there's still a large percentage of this country that thinks that donald trump won the election which is simply a lie right under the fairness doctrine if cnn or msnbc calls joe biden the president and says he won the election do people watching fox news get to go on cnn and say no he didn't yeah. So I think maybe instead of like going for the fairness doctrine, which just gives all perspectives uh, an equal platform, there should maybe be more of an emphasis um, on regulation and stopping organizations and, and news sources from just peddling lies.
2: Yeah, and I, I'm gonna maybe an alternative proposal in that light is maybe we should just seek to make the entire populace more educated, which is related related to informed but not, not necessarily present both sides. Maybe we should aim to empower programs like PBS or NPR, which m- maybe conservatives would say has a liberal bias, but it's, it's national public radio. It's supposed to be relatively centrist. Uh, because I think when, when people have more general information about policy issues, they tend to be more receptive to maybe even ideas that contradict them. Like I think there's some interesting studies about if people know where Ukraine is on a map, they're less likely to support hawkish policies. Same thing; they've done studies with North Korea. If you ask an American citizen where is North Korea, and they put the dot on like Iran, they're highly like they're more likely to to support a preemptive strike against North Korea because you're just less informed about the facts, and you're more willing to kind of pivot to the ideological fringe. Um, so maybe it's not that on MSNBC we need to have an election denier be given time under the Coleman Doctrine, maybe it's that PBS needs to have more funding to do segments on how elections work, and then people would be a little bit more confident in elections.
1: Another aspect of the fairness doctrine to examine in the present is something called the chilling effect, um, which had an impact back then, and I imagine would have an impact now as well. The chilling effect is basically news organizations didn't want to have to respond to fairness doctrine complaints, so they just avoided certain topics. Um, and I imagine that would definitely happen again. I mean, we, no one could really imagine CNN giving Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, 30 minutes to talk about some Islamophobic take, right? So maybe mainstream media outlets today would just stop talking about really controversial issues. And one of the points of the Fairness Doctrine was to ensure that these issues of public importance were talked about on on the news and for people to listen to them and form their own opinions. And so the Fairness Doctrine um, the chilling effect would kind of be defeating one of the major points. Uh, that the doctrine was implemented for in the first place. By not talking about immigration, you're not serving the public interest. Or by not talking about climate change, you're not serving the public interest but, but, either. But, but what if
0: you what if you included a clause of? And I, I think this is the way the Ferris doctrine worked: of you have to, to present a balance of, uh, of viewpoints on issues of public importance to the communities that they. That right. They are. But it, what it, is it, an it, issue it was, of public it, importance? Yes, well,
1: so that that was included. In the original Fairness Doctrine, it just had literally zero teeth. And so the only part of the Fairness Doctrine that really had any teeth was, like, actually receiving those complaints and having people speak on the different shows. Um, Because it is, like, tough to determine what is an issue of public importance, especially today when everyone has their thing. So I don't think it would be very hard for for news outlets to just forego talking about something.
2: Yeah, but... i'm receptive to that point i also do think that there's already a chilling effect though not not to continuously hate on fox but just as an example like i think it was maybe the first trump impeachment trial where there was like weeks of that trial going on and fox decided that week that they were going to cover like fast food or something like (laughs) they're they're tv networks at least like not to maybe talk about other platforms which may be more you know content diverse tv networks have a lot of latitude over what they want to cover you know cnn can decide that for an entire month they're going to track a missing malaysian airplane because that's what they think viewers want to hear about and fox can decide that was interesting <laughs> and, that, and that was maybe one of the most you know dynamic times for cnn um but I, i'm not i'm not so concerned that's not the reason for me at least well, I don't think the fairness doctrine would be effective. I think that news networks already ignore the things that they don't think viewers want to view. And Fox is guilty of that, but I'd say that CNN and MSNBC are too. Like Tara Reid, Joe Biden's accuser during the 2020 campaign, she was virtually ignored by CNN. Let,
0: let Let me raise a more fundamental question that one would need to answer if they wanted to have the fairness doctrine exist today, which is whether the landscape... Of the way we consume news today, even allows for it to function. So today, a lot of people get their news from social media or from podcasts. Maybe this one, but Should probably we be fairness doctrine, but yeah. probably you know, Pod Save America, the Joe Rogan Experience, and presumably a modern day fairness doctrine wouldn't regulate YouTube. Presumably, it wouldn't regulate social media. Yeah. Wouldn't regulate podcasts. Maybe, maybe it would. To me, that feels like a dangerous, you know form of government overreach that I don't think I would be in favor of. And if they then don't regulate podcasts and social media, then there's definitely a risk that imposing this kind of mandated balance uh, on you know Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, will just push people away from TV and towards social media and podcasts that are going to feed them the more extreme news that they're looking for, which I think is probably worse on the whole. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big podcast enthusiast, but it's Probably a little harder to hold those forms of media accountable. Oftentimes they say a lot of crazier things. It's probably harder to sue them for defamation. Um, so I think there is that kind of double bind. Like if you regulate those forms of, of media, I think steps into the liberty, liberties of private citizens. If you don't, you just risk pushing people away from the dominant mainstream media sources and towards those alternative forms of news.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think with podcasts, for example, or any any alternative form of media that maybe, maybe isn't in print, it's just really difficult to define what is news and what is not. Exactly. Um, like us as a podcast, we're not a news source. However, we're talking about current events. Um, Joe Rogan is not a news source. However, Joe Rogan presents information from many other outlets that actually do report on the news. Um, so to try to enforce any type of fairness doctrine on a freewheeling podcast, for example, is really difficult. Um, I don't know the breakdown maybe of how many people in America actually get their news from podcasts. I'd imagine it's probably smaller than Americans that find newspaper articles from social media now. So I would think maybe that's a better target if you're going to try to take fairness to social media, to alternative platforms.
1: I mean, if if we're just going by how the fairness doctrine was implemented back then, which was requiring that news sources that needed broadcasting licenses had to be under the fairness doctrine, only 24% of Americans uh, get their news from local TV or radio stations, which are the only right. groups nowadays that require broadcast. And mostly lessons. older people, right? And mo- you, you, I, I'm actually not sure. I, at least on cable, like Fox News, um, and even CNN and MSNBC, the average viewer age is something like 65. Right. Um, so all of us, no one... Uh, at, at we're, college, not, we're not tuning in to TV news. Is posting up in the room night and, watching, and, and watching Tucker Carlson. And even like on, on your point about entertainment, Jack, uh, Tucker Carlson and Fox yes. have claimed successfully in court that nothing they say can reasonably be interpreted as fact because they're an entertainment show. Um, so it's very hard to determine in today's very, very... Social media world: What is truly news, and what is meant to be interpreted as
2: objective? Yeah, and I think that people that have put forward proposals that are, you know, fairness doctrine inspired have target less the actual generators of content, say like newspapers, podcasts, uh, rather than the platforms that actually distribute those. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Josh Hawley yeah. introduced a provision in the Senate. I believe it was in twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. That would have made tech companies prove to the Federal Trade Commission by clear and convincing evidence that their algorithms are politically neutral. So that would mean, you know, try to make sure that Facebook, every time it shows you like a Drudge Report article, also shows you like Jacobin or something. (laughs) Um, I'm not a big fan of those proposals, um, nor is anyone who's involved in the social media business, um, (laughs) because politically neutral, pretty vague, and also. From a business perspective, their algorithms thrive off of feeding people content that echoes their own perspectives. Um, but I, I think it is important to hone in on the platforms themselves. Yeah. Um, so if, if you're going to make serious proposals about like changing, if you can hold social media companies accountable for distributing misinformation, that's going to have more of an impact than making sure that Joe Rogan has someone on his show who's a Democrat.
0: Yeah. So I, I think. In theory, I like the goals of the Fairness Doctrine. It doesn't seem like any of us are particularly too deeply opposed to the idea of balanced coverage, but we take issue with maybe the practicalities of applying it in the modern day, the question of whether it works in our current landscape of news, the question of whether, given our state of polarization, people's minds would even be changed, whether they'd just hear straw mans and become even firmer in their pre-existing political positions. Are there any alternatives if we don't think the Fairness Doctrine is the answer. In what other ways can we reduce polarization, combat fake news and misinformation, and you know make our news media a little bit less of a joke?
2: Let me pitch something that's a little bit kumbaya, but I think it's, it's serious. Um, as opposed to a fairness doctrine that looks anything like what the fairness doctrine look like, I would propose a type of fairness doctrine for our real lives. And, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> deep. Let that sink in for a second and there's a reason. Um, I would argue that the segregated media environment that we consume is reflected and encouraged by the fact that we live in a segregated real world where people only talk to people of the same political leanings and they don't want to talk to people who will challenge their opinions. Uh, The research that I talked about before that talked about newspapers and how they cater to the regions, those authors think that face-to-face interactions among people's friends and their neighbors are even more ideological, ideologically homogenous than their media consumption. That's and this, this research comes from a few years ago, right? But what they basically said was that there are people who watch Fox that are centrist or even liberal. And there are people that watch CNN that are quite right-leaning. But there may, may be fewer right-leaning people who talk to liberals in real life, not on their television screen. So I'm gonna propose something that would make people talk to other people in real life before we even worry about the type of media that they're consuming, mm-hmm. because it's it's my belief that there's a type of group learning. People have talked about this. People, they read, they watch, but most Americans are really going off of cues from other people as far as where they stand on major issues. You know, you know most people don't have a strong view on like section 1331 of the Affordable Care Act. They just know that their neighbor needs health insurance, something like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm not exactly sure what the mechanism there is. Maybe it's a citizen's assembly where we bring people together. Maybe it's about, in the education system, like making sure that people are able to talk about their political beliefs Mm -hmm. early and learn to disagree constructively. Um, I think we need to address the root of people's aversion to getting outside of their bubble.
1: That's fair. Harvard's certainly not helping with that. Um, uh, I'll, I'll give something that maybe could be used in the interim while we're trying to fix those much more structural issues. Yeah, can't fix uh, the world all at once. Yeah. Can't. Um, there's something called the private fairness doctrine that's been floated around. Um, and the perk of that is it wouldn't be created by the government. It wouldn't need the FCC um, for implementation. So it gets rid of mistrust of the government. It gets rid of the potential for government misuse. Um, and it would rely on uh, building a representative, broad stakeholder group that would set standards for traditional and new media, um, so both like news and podcasts, um, and that stakeholder group would rate and grade media on their systems and how well they curate media, um, that eventually makes it out into the public, how fair it is. Those stakeholder groups would be backed up and enforced by advertisers who would say they would only advertise to A minus rated firms or above or whatever. Arbitrary grade you want to give, and so this would harness the market pressure instead of government regulation oversight um, to maintain accountability um, among news firms, old and new. Because if they don't, they're not going to get advertising money. I don't know how feasible that would that sure. that would be. It doesn't seem super feasible to me, but it's an idea.
0: Oh, it's interesting. There are already like independent sources that kind of evaluate the. Biases or like the amount of misinformation in yeah. news sources, so it's I guess it's like a continuation of that yeah. approach. Gives yeah. me a little
2: bit of Facebook Oversight Board vibes. I think you you just have to work really hard to get this kind of broad stakeholder group.
1: Yeah, it would be hard. Maybe this is a long term and one that's independent. Term yeah, well. independent <laughs> and
2: diverse. That's that's tough. Tough balance to strike. Hey, we're <laughs> just one podcast. Yeah, you know, you know it's it's hard to solve the entire media landscape. Can only do so much. Yeah.
0: Well, it seems like the three of us aren't too confident that the Fairness Doctrine is the silver bullet for our problem of media polarization today. I think we like the idea in theory, or at least I do, but unfortunately right now it seems like there are a lot of feasibility concerns. For one thing, the emergence of alternative forms of news like podcasts and YouTube complicates the matter. Then there's the question of whether we can have a truly politically neutral implementation of the Fairness Doctrine in our age of polarization. And finally the question of how diverse viewpoints would actually be received, right, to Jaden's concern that people would just cling more tightly to their pre-existing political beliefs and identities. But hopefully abandoning the fairness doctrine doesn't mean abandoning any hope for fairness in the news, so let's cautiously hope for a better news landscape and call out the big companies for their nonsense when it arises. And to Jack's point, maybe if we take on some responsibility to escape our own echo chambers and talk to people we disagree with, the news will slowly follow our lead. This was Ad Hoc. Thank you for listening.